Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema. My name is Jason Daphnis, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Hi, I'm Aaron uh, I'm, Grossman. Uh, you can shit. find me. I got it before you. I'm Aaron Grossman. You can find me on Twitter at RB, please. Uh, and I'm Harry Mackin. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. And we have a special guest today. Uh, yes, introducing Matt Yost, uh, returning from episode, I believe it was 50, about Black Christmas. Welcome back, Matt. Happy to be back, guys. I'm Matt Yost. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Matt Yost, followed by an underscore. Followed by an underscore and, uh, what, like 100 people? 150? 200? No. <laughs> all right uh, man more like 60 <laughs> i did i did not mean to put you on blast like that uh matt is joining us as part of our try love in the time of corona series wherein we're trying to uh fit as many guest appearances as possible with the new tools we have aaron your mic is still on so i'm going to mute you uh we are going to um cover uh movies maybe not directly related to uh isolation or quarantine but maybe we'll find an angle along the way and uh, i'm gonna let matt introduce today's movie pick all right, great. Um, the movie today is Cabaret, 1972, directed by Bob Fosse. It's based on a number of different things, so I'll kind of try to follow the path a little bit. So it's based off of originally a book by Christopher Isherwood called Berlin Stories, which is from, I think, the uh, early 40s or late 30s that he wrote that, followed by a play called I Am Camera, or I Am a Camera, excuse me, uh, written by John Van Druten, which is a play adaptation of the book itself, which was then turned into a musical, Cabaret, in 1966 by Candor and Ebb. Uh, and then that was turned into this movie in 1972, which is sort of an amalgamation of all of the things. It's not just a straight adaptation of musical. It actually incorporates elements of both the play and the book. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Cabaret, uh, thanks for kind of handling that. That's a kind of a good summation of, uh, I don't know, the background of the movie. Um, so just for kind of a, a basic plot synopsis here, um, it's set in the Weimar Republic, uh, which is basically Germany uh, in the 30s for the most part. Um, it's set in the early 30s, I believe 31, 1931. Um, it tells the story of two people living in Berlin. Um, the first is Sally Bowles, plays by, played by uh, Liza Minnelli um, in an Oscar winning performance. Uh, she's an adventurous woman uh, working as a cabaret dancer at the Kit Kat Club. Um, and the second character is uh, Michael York uh, playing Brian Roberts, who is a uh, British academic uh, kind of scholar who's arriving from Cambridge and teaching English lessons, uh, lessons in order to pay his bills. And the lives of these two people in the cabaret is they kind of experiment uh, kind of, you know, sexually and with their lives. Um, but their lives are unimpacted by the looming Nazi threat uh, until kind of suddenly they are. Um, 
Yeah. Okay. Summary. I don't. I don't think that's a bad one. I hey. think. It, I think it. I think it tees us up for talking about how some of that was kind of wrong. No. Uh, what? I. I. In the original stage play, and I don't. I don't know the stage play. Matt knows this. Uh, this production a lot better than any of us. So I'll let him fill in the gaps where need be. But in the original stage play, Sally calls uh, the Kit Kat Club the most. Uh, the most non-political, unpolitical place in Berlin, I think. Uh, and and I think a little bit of your summary indulges in that a little bit where like it's un, un, unaffected, where their lives are unaffected by the rise of the Nazi regime during the Weimar Republic a little too much. Would you agree? I disagree, but I, I don't know. I think one of the, the primary kind of themes of this movie is the, the inability to hide from kind of growing political and, and economic circumstances. Um, I, you know, I think, I think the cabaret is always presented as a, not necessarily like a hiding place, but like kind of a, a place of reprieve. Um, but that nevertheless, you know, kind of reflects, uh, what is going on in the outside world. Matt, would, would you agree or disagree with what I'm saying? I think it's complicated. And I think that's the point that the, the, the film definitely tries to make is there's this tension that's there and, uh, on the one hand, I think that you're right. It's supposed to be this place of kind of respite and this, this separation, but it's also kind of representative of this sort of indulgence and this sort of hedonism and all of this kind of ignorance and arrogance of this time period where, uh, you know, it's simultaneously like in the foreground and the background that this, you know, this regime is developing and this, this world is uh, being, it's sort of percolating. Um, I think that's framed really early on, right? Um, one of my favorite things about this movie, and I think about uh, the staging itself, I I understand from um, it's either the the musical or the play, is that it opens with this funhouse mirror, basically. It's it's like this beveled mirror that makes up the uh, the back of the cabaret. And uh, as the movie opens, it pans over this and, and we see these distorted, refracted versions of the audience members in the audience, which I understand is also how the the play itself was meant to be staged, where people would walk into the theater and they would see the mirror up on the stage and they would see themselves reflected in it. And then the the master of ceremonies of the cabaret talks about how in, in the opening number, he, he talks about how... Um, this is a place to forget your troubles. Um, everything is beautiful here and, and there is no tension, right? Uh, and that framing device recurs um, in more and more ironic circumstances throughout the film until finally, in the end, we return to that initial framing device. The movie ends as it begins with a pan over this uh, refracted mirror, except now we can see the Nazi armbands in the audience, right? Um, and so that's a really interesting uh, framing device. And I think throughout the movie, uh, the cabaret, Matt, like you suggested, is used for a lot of different ironic or um, illustrative purposes um, to talk about what's happening around these people and within these people in this time period. Uh, yeah, and I didn't do way too much research here, but I did do enough to find out that um, in uh, at the end of the 1800s and as the, at the turn of the century in Germany, uh, cabaret actually was split into two general disciplines, like traditional cabaret, uh, you know, sideshow reviews and strip shows and uh, all the all the fun vaudevillian uh, antics that you've come to associate with with the term cabaret, and then actually like, and I don't. 
I don't speak German, but basically cabaret with a K and two T's where like these institutions were more specifically and exclusively um, created for the purpose of social uh, commentary and satire. Uh, and like that, th- that's sort of the milieu into which uh, the idea of this cabaret was born. And the movie tries to like, I guess, put like integrate those two ideas where one is, you know, kind of mindless, uh, aimless escapist fun. And one is more uh, genuine social critique. And one interesting thing that I found out as I was looking at like contemporary thought about the movie is that a lot of audiences, including Jewish audiences felt that like, or didn't quite pick up on, uh, it didn't believe that it was working as satire specifically with the character of the MC because it leverages so much, uh, you know, fascist aesthetic and, uh, and how many, and, and like uh, several numbers are very well dedicated to, uh, either like making fun of the Nazi regime to the point where like he paints uh, a Hitler mustache on himself and Sieg Heils across the stage, N- numerous numbers that are like lampooning that. But I found it interesting. I don't know if anybody else did that uh, at the time that was not like clearly apparent as satire. Yeah. I, I think it's really biting like that that's one thing that i was very much surprised by is is how satirical a lot of the musical numbers in this this film are i think um specifically i mean money money you know is a a, i mean that's just a classic song right and i i think that whole sequence is um not just illustrative of a lot of the larger problems with uh you know entertainment is is resistance per se but also you know, also kind of shadows what's coming with the characters in the next few sequences. Um, I think if you could see her at the end of this film is like inc- incredibly like biting satire. Um, and then as well, kind of the, the tomorrow belongs to me sequence, which I'm sure we'll talk in a bit. So I, I'll, I'll leave that for a later discussion, I guess. Uh, I would love to hear Aaron, actually your take on why um, you think um that that final song is satirical uh i'd be very interested in that but um i uh i definitely agree with you it's it's really satirical and it's also very unsparing um and unsparing in uh who it targets in that it it really um has a lot to say about everyone's contributions to the rise of fascism and everyone's sort of um, complicity in it. And it, it made for a really bracing watch uh, for me in these times. Um, I'm sorry to do this to you, uh, Matt Yost, but uh, you can also follow Matt on Letterboxd. Uh, and he wrote a really good review about this uh, movie. And I think that it may be, um, it may be informed some of my watching after the fact, but um, I think that this, this movie is really interested in laying out hypocrisy or in laying out how just because your own, um, your own desires and needs stem from uh, neglect or abuse that you yourself have suffered, it doesn't make you any less complicit in the suffering of others in a way that I found very um, nuanced and uh, interesting. Um, and complicated, I think. And it, it made for uh, complex character dynamics um, that I think that musical was really well leveraged to um, bring out, even um, satirically and even using the cabaret framing. Yeah, I I guess I'm only interjecting here because I do want to hear more about what Matt thinks about that. How like, uh, like Harry mentioned, the um, all, most of these musical numbers are lever- leverage specifically the like the character of the audience to te- to to be satirical right like you are put in the mind and in the space of you know uh wealthy bourgeois Ber- berliners in 1931 uh and and seeing these messages in such a body way up on screen and i uh, uh, your um 
similarly to Harry, like reading your review, Matt, helped me clarify some of those thoughts. Uh, and I, I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that aspect of, of like your critical read of the movie. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that I'm just going to pull up my review here so I can make sure I remember what I thought. Um, but I, I mean, importantly, I think is to think about this just sort of number one sort of framed structurally and, um, that is, you know, this musical represents such a sea change uh, as, a, as a, you know, amateur scholar of musical theater. Um, this musical itself kind of represents a bit of a sea change that happened in the sort of late 60s, where prior to this musical and certain other musicals of the era, um, musicals were mostly sung through, they sort of developed from operas, and they became this sort of thing where, you know, you were essentially telling a play as a story, but in, in a musical. So people were, you know, center stage singing their thoughts to each other. It was very naturalistic. It was, you know, this sort of absurd universe in which people sing their thoughts rather than speak them. And everyone in, the, in that exists in that universe just sort of takes that and, and it's understandable. And, you know, sometimes audiences find that. And I mean, to this day, I think contemporary audiences find that very strange about certain musicals or that musical style is that this is just like, this isn't how people talk. This isn't how people communicate. How can this world, like, how can I suspend disbelief enough to understand this world? So musicals like Cabaret took that and they made their musicals more diegetic and they have every musical number in this show um, is performed as a stage number. So it's simultaneously advancing the plot in that it's, you know, as, as, as has been said, it's, we're talking about these sort of symbolic and, uh, uh, I don't know, interesting observational moments that these songs represent, but at the same time, the the occasion for them makes perfect sense because you're watching them being performed. And I mean, I think the Fosse does a really great job of cutting the performances between, you know, the, the physical and spoken action that's going on around it because it really contextualizes everything. But I mean, to get to to my review, I think the the point that I definitely was trying to make is that you see the sort of interrelated roles that everybody's having in sort of advancing and creating this world, this environment. It's everyone is, everyone shares the blame in a certain way. You know, no one comes out of this situation blameless. And I think that that's a critical point because, and I mean, I think as has already been sort of alluded to, it's interesting to watch it in the context of this sort of moment that we're living in right now, because it's hard not to, feel as someone you know who exists in sort of our contemporary culture that you are somehow complicit for the sort of socioeconomic problems of the world so i mean i think to the extent that that sort of frames kind of a broad outline of kind of my view of things that's that's definitely how i saw it i didn't see who harry or aaron went up first so i'm gonna let you guys fight it out aaron sure. did thank you uh, <laughs> no problem we can still fight it out harry if you want later always uh, yeah. Uh, no, I was going to ask in, in regard to the the diegetic music of this film. Um, I guess Matt in particular. You know, this came out. Uh, I want to say, you know, different iterations and whatnot. I guess I don't know about that. But the the film uh, of this came out in 1972, uh, three years before Chicago uh, came out as a as a, a play or a you know a musical uh, in the theater. Um, and how do you compare? Because when I think of Chicago, I think of this kind of mix of diegetic and non-diegetic songs and, and sequences where this film it's, it's all, I believe 100% diegetic. Um, is there kind of a style that you prefer or uh, I guess, how do you, when you think about this film being, I guess a little more realistic versus other musicals um, I guess, what are your kind of general thoughts there on your preferences? 
So I'm pretty open-minded about it. I mean, as a, you know, an old school musical theater, like actor, singer, performer kind of person, I really like it all. So whatever the occasion calls for it, I think that for this moment and this type of story, this probably works the best. And it's, I think, probably the most realistic. Um, I will say that the musical itself uh, is not 100% diegetic. There are some more traditional songs that are done through. There's a uh, there's a sort of B story that's completely cut out of the movie that's in the musical involving uh, Frau Schneider, the owner of the uh, boarding house and a Jewish man that she falls in love with. Um, but uh, most of those songs are, I think, are all of them are non-diegetic. But I will say you but you make an interesting point bringing up Chicago. So interestingly enough, Chicago was also a musical that was developed by Bob Fosse. Um, and uh, his wife at the time, Gwen Verdon, it was this long-standing project that they really, really wanted to get done. And so the two of them were, uh, with Kander Neb, the writers of Cabaret, they were really looking to work something, I think, new, and they really wanted to develop something, a style that was very different from the time. So just from an innovation perspective, I mean, I really appreciate the fact that they did it this way, and then the fact that they filmed the movie so quickly. I mean, it's interesting that, like you said, Chicago was, uh, developed and you know finally developed in 1975 and we didn't have a film version of it until 2002 so it's you know this is this is quite an, a lengthy time and during that sort of period we had very still traditional for the most part movie musicals that were being created sure it seems like this this film to me seems kind of like I think I prefer it to Chicago, but it seems like kind of I don't want to say like a test run for Chicago but it seems like a lot of the same techniques that Fosse would use in Chicago kind of maybe, I don't know about begin here, but it's certainly utilized here. Um, you know, I, I think uh, a lot of what Chicago is doing with the switch between like diegetic and non-diegetic music, this film is doing with a lot of the diegetic music cutting to uh, people outside of the cabaret uh, experiencing situations that kind of are remarked upon by the lyrics and yeah. the music in the background. Harry, you want to jump off that? No, I, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, but but you you two are both talking about one of the, like my favorite um, formal things about this movie. You brought up specifically the cutting, Aaron. Um, this movie has some of the most brilliant cutting I've ever seen uh, in a movie, maybe. Um, between like almost imagined cabaret spaces and literal cabaret spaces back to uh real spaces back to flashbacks in all of those different spaces and times intermingle um to tell an emotional story as it affects the main character as it sort of is received by the main characters um and uh it it had occurred to me that all of these um songs are diegetic but um Matt, the way that you framed that as a sea change is really um fascinating to me because that makes it feel so deliberate in a, in a way that, that what it's attempting to evoke is really fascinating. Um, particularly when you talked about how in musicals there, there's a sort of, um, there's you, what musicals, how musicals function is they bring the, the magical space of the musical into the reality of the story that unfolds, right? Where, like you said, everyone accepts that, people can sing their emotions and, and the orchestra will play when the time is right. This movie does the inverse in a really modernist and fascinating way to me, where it has the effect of making the story that we watch feel more performative and more staged. Like these are people on a stage in a cabaret in the reality that they're living, which correlates so well with the way that the main character um, 
Liza Minnelli's um, character, Sally, performs her life. Uh, and later how um, Brian, when he's brought into this um, this world that she inhabits, comes to perform his life as well. And what they learn about themselves and each other and, and life itself um, through that, that sort of educated process. I really love the way that the cabaret frames that and the way it gets you to think about their lives, right? Where like it, it keeps even cutting back to the MC himself as the master of ceremonies of not only the cabaret, but also their lives as it unfolds. And you can also see where their lives are going uh, relative to the rise of fascism and what we know about history. Um, and that really, really worked for me. And I think that where that's, I think where that contributes to the success uh, in a really unique way is it's really difficult to adapt a musical for film. And I think part of what's difficult about it is because there's sort of this double layer of suspension of, of disbelief that's required. So in addition to you already have this sort of artificial creation in a film itself, which people are willing to accept a certain degree of, because obviously that's just how film works. But if you're just sort of filming a straight non-diegetic musical, you sort of lose a lot of the magic there because you have lost the orchestra, you've lost the experience of having it staged for you. So there's something sort of doubly discomforting about having a musical straight performed. Whereas in this case, the pretense of that's completely dropped, but you still get this sort of musical aspect of it and you still get this sort of magical surrealism that's going on, which I think is part of the reason why this is so successful as both a musical and as a film and why it, why it allows both of those sort of art forms to really kind of flow. Well, and, and what's so fascinating about that is I I agree with that, um, and I agree with the magical surrealism that you mentioned. But it doesn't lose any of its placeness for all of that. In fact, there there's some sense in which the the dispension of the the um or sorry dispensing with the uh the musical qualities it foregrounds placeness really well. Where like this felt like a movie, uh, a story that was so essential to its time and could only have come out of its time and was speaking to its time. And it, there's something ironic to me about the fact that they were able to pull that off, but I was really impressed by it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think even cutting back to, uh, oh, that's a pun, I guess, but, but, Jumping back to your point about the editing in this film and kind of the the, the quick cuts that this yeah, film please. does, I think some of the editing in this movie is like it really inspired. Um, you know, I think it's kind of the same trick done over and over again, um, but it works well each time. Where there's a kind of a cut between um, like a large tonal shift, right, between people enjoying what's happening in their lives and their situation to you know, kind of a, a quick cut to, you know, for instance, somebody getting beat up by Nazis because he kicked one of them out of the club uh, the night right. before, right? Um, I think that kind of thing happens over and over again, and it kind of helps accentuate uh, what's often not being shown, which is, again, Nazis rising to power, becoming more prominent, etc. Right, and this, I mean, this movie did, I'm sure we'll get to this point, but I mean, this movie did win eight Academy Awards, and one of them was for Best Editing, and I was sort of looking yeah. through the, 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 the oeuvre of the editor, and it's interesting, I think this was his only Oscar win, and he's got, it was a very interesting sort of, he'd, he'd done some musicals before, he did some, you know, pretty traditional films before, but um, I think that 
the way that this succeeds on an editorial perspective, and some of that's definitely informed by the fact that I have seen uh, the miniseries Fosse Verdon about Bob Fosse, and part of it touches on the creation of this film, is the sort of creative freedom that developed both on Fosse's front alone and also between the two of them that sort of allowed him to really do something that, that was different or that was innovative for the time period. Well, and, and what struck me about it is it's so bold because it's so specifically the last way that you would think to edit a, a musical where like those quick cuts between like seven different scenes, some of which are imagined, some of which are purely sort of um, evocative metaphorical in the case of the the MC cutbacks in the um, cabaret or like Aaron, you mentioned the the cuts between the cabaret and then the um, the man being beaten up by the Nazis. Those are like the last things you could do on a stage. Like, and so it was so, it was so interesting for them to choose cuts like that in, in order to, to really foreground and shout out how this is something that the medium of film is giving them the capacity to do. And it's a different way to tell this story and it has a different effect. And I thought that was really brilliant, uh, as a way to play in the space of having the opportunity uh, that film gives you as opposed to a stage play or uh, a book even, or something like that. Right. It, it's such a centralizing of the medium. Yeah. I, I think that um, I'm not an expert on musicals, but I think that part of the way, you know, kind of the, the main uh, a goal of, of a lot of uh, musical sequences, specifically ones that are sung by by one kind of main character, are you know an expression of interiority of how that character is feeling at a certain point in time, and it is centering that character's experience. Um, and I think part of that editing it kind of undercuts that very purposefully, where it shows a character's inner feelings and then immediately contextualizes it in regard to the political situation of what is happening around them, um, and it kind of I don't want to say it like shrinks those characters, right? But it, it helps contextualize them and helps those experiences feel kind of uh, uh, very small as as the situation around them gets even more dangerous. What an excellent yeah. point that is. Sorry, yeah, go I ahead, was, Jason. I was, was going to say, it, it's like the point you're making seems to be like, unlike what you might expect from a musical, like no character is given too much time to soliloquize, right? They're, despite their uh, characters being written and acting out, um, entire stories that are willfully or actively ignorant of their scenario. I think one of the one of my favorite scenes is when um, Sally and Brian go under the uh, elevated train and just scream while the um, while the train rolls overhead. Uh, I think that that scene carries a lot. It like despite those characters having that interiority and pursuing that interiority through like monologuing type songs, at least, you know, we're talking about the audience always being present there, but for the purposes of the musical portions, like they are singing about themselves or there's, or I guess in, in Sally's case in specific, she's singing about herself. She's singing about, you know, her, her uh, body pursuits. And, but again, like through editing and through like the scenes that, that uh, buffer those, those pieces, does not ever let them like just have their moment to themselves. And I think that is like the overall theme of the movie is like, it's encroaching like without they're not able to ignore it despite every aspect of their character and the writing being told to ignore it. Right. Uh, really, really well characterized Jason, uh, particularly shouting out the train scene. That's like, literally they have to, uh, the only way that they can express themselves is in their environment and uh, using their environment, but the environment is still there, right? Like they, they can scream all right, but it's being drowned out by what's around them. Um, 
uh, and Aaron, to your point and a little bit to Matt's point first, when he talked about how the central thesis of this movie is, is in how it complicates the lives of these people and their viewpoints. Um, it's so fascinating, uh, Aaron, the way that you said that like, um, central sort of soliloquies from a single character are usually supposed to not only depict the worldview of that person and depict their feelings, but also to sort of validate them and make them true. Like by the by the end of a soliloquy, a, a, a sung soliloquy that the main character uh, sings in a musical, the audience is meant to feel sympathetic to their worldview. And if not only sympathetic, then empathetic, they're supposed to share it. Whereas here, this movie is all about challenging those worldviews, right? Even as it's sympathetic, like we are meant to be sympathetic to Brian and to Sally and to their um, tragic, sordid relationship, but also we're meant to see it in the context of what it is and what it is um, re- requiring of everyone else and of the world and how they got to be there, and also how uh, their privilege is itself uh, complicit with uh, the things that are happening around them. Right, so so we get to see this this sense in which. Actually, uh, unlike in a classical musical, you don't get to have this validation of who you are and where you came from, because in reality, it's more complicated than that. In reality, where you came from is always um, on the heels of or on the shoulders of something else. And when you examine the environment, it complicates the um, conclusion. Uh, Yeah, springboarding off that... uh... I talked a little bit before we started recording about a paper I read um, entitled Cabaret and Antifascist Aesthetics by Stephen Belletto. It's from 2008, I believe from Wayne State University. Uh, but it describes Sally as, quote unquote, the um, the least politically aware character in the film, which I don't know that I necessarily agree with. I think the thesis we're coming up with here or not coming up with, but that we're, uh, you know, repeating here is that no character is completely unaware or could be completely unaware of this through the eyes of the, like specifically the audience. Uh, but like the interactions of the main cast with Nazi oppression are at best, or at least in my view at best, like sort of, flaccid resistance brian has a scuffle with nazis outside the the apartment uh and then he calls out one of the housemates the the author Uh, i'm forgetting all characters names here so my apologies but he calls out the author for subscribing to uh, nazi tripe i like did any of that ring any as anything more than like like what i saw it as in in my watch through as just sort of uh tepid and you know ineffectual ineffectual yeah that's that's the word i was looking for I mean, I think that that's right. And I think that, I mean, to the extent that obviously I haven't had a look at this paper that you're talking about, but I think that fundamental in all of that, and that's sort of endemic throughout this, is the idea that ignorance in itself is a political act or it's a political choice. I think one thing that this film does really well is depict the idea that you can't exist. I mean, it's, what is it, Howard's in saying that, you know, you, you can't be neutral on a moving train. Like, you exist in this world and you're participating in this world you are still making political statements you're still you're still you know sort of pursuing political actions and that is i mean clearly on display here from the fact that i mean brian being sort of the only like you said he's sort of the only overt political actor his sort of political action to the extent that it is actually action is it's almost kind of pathetic because it sort of just, I mean, it showcases him as an outsider for the first 
for the, I mean, sort of on the first part, because he's not German. He's not really doing anything to actively, his sort of battle with fascism, with Nazism is essentially intellectual. It's not anything more than that. He's sort of not, you know, calling up arms and, you know, forming a resistance or anything like that. And then you sort of contrast that with um, the, his his one student who you find out over the course of the movie has been lying the entire time. He's sort of this poor uh, man, Fritz Wendel, who is uh, trying to sort of increase his station. And he does that by falling in love with sort of a Jewish heiress. And then you find out all along that he's been lying about being Jewish. And that's sort of this identity in itself. And you see the sort of political ramifications of that too, not just the fact that, you know, obviously choosing to identify and self-identify as Jewish during this period is clearly recognized as something dangerous, but the fact that you came in and sort of abandoned that self-identity, again, sort of another overt political act. Yeah, I think the the nature of communication and the, the problems that stem from uh, the main four or so uh, characters in their attempts to communicate with one another. I think that's made more fascinating here just uh, because of the, you know, you guys were talking about the interplay between the um, more musical uh, ingrained components of the movie and then the standard narrative um, cinematic components. But um, I mean, Brian's character is, he's a, a scholar and he brings everybody together to uh, at one point to, uh, he doesn't intentionally bring everybody together. He's trying to teach this um, uh, Natalia Landauer um, and, uh, you know, Fritz and uh, Sally are there as well. And we get, I thought about the sequence a lot where everybody um, who was you know, present there, those four had trouble communicating as, as a group. Um, it was this weird inter- intersection of everybody's um, aims. And then as they start to pair off, we see how you know ineffectual they are in communicating with each other. Uh, Fritz, who eventually falls in love with Natalia, um, you know, has uh, trouble communicating his feelings. Likewise, with um, with Sally and Brian, and that scene with Brian, as ineffectual as it was with him um, standing up to a couple uh, of Nazis, it I think that was um, an important beat in his arc, uh, as far as him just being communicative and um you know just as an act of of self-expression i really like the idea of of communication um as a as a sort of central motif here especially artistic communication because it it occurred to me as as i was um as i was listening to all of the points that we're making that we sort of um that this movie itself like it it brings a lot of disparate elements together that maybe on first glance don't make a lot of sense to bring together like even the central sort of um thematic metaphor here of the cabaret is such a strange fit for a movie that's as politically engaged as this one is but it it occurred to me that um that that's sort of the point right which is which is sort of the point we've been making uh, quite a lot is that actually this movie seems to be saying to me um, it's it's reframing what art uh, and communication and even the sort of escapism usually offered um, ostensibly by something like a cabaret is so like like to Jason's point when Jason said that um, Sally um, appears to be a politically demotivated character or like Matt said um, everyone 
always is political. There is only political life. This movie seems to be suggesting something like that and something like that also extended to art and communication itself, that because we are all political people and because all things are political, even our entertainment and our um, art and the way that we communicate is itself political. And there is an arc in this movie toward a growing awareness of that because of the necessity of the circumstances. Right. And so like, it's interesting to see how that arc plays out in addition to all of the other character arcs that occur in this movie. Is that arc you're talking about uh didactic in your view, your, your view, Harry, or anybody else's. Cause I'm trying to think like there are multiple characters that are in much more dangerous a, a scenario, a situation than Sally is. And she is generally seen as quote unquote, like I said, from the paper I quoted the least politically active character or at least politically aware, whatever the phrasing was. Uh, and you know, she's friends with uh, at least two Jewish people, whether she knows it or not. Um, she's friends with a few Berliners, uh, with multiple people who under the Weimar Republic and the incoming Nazi regime would have been uh, censored or, you know, uh, or, or worse. And I'm wondering if there's any responsibility placed on any particular character or Sally herself. Um, I guess I'm zeroing in on Sally just because like she is the American, she is the, the one who's only been there three months. Does this movie say that anybody in particular has a responsibility to, to address this? Or is it just like laying out the reality that, you know, even inaction is a political act? Right. Descriptive versus prescriptive. Uh, Matt, you put your hand up, so uh, I'll let you go first. Oh, thank you. I think that one of the things that's sort of didactic, and I think centering around Sally is a good example of that, is this idea that a lot of times, I think, and I'm sure that this was definitely, I mean, this has always been sort of a, an aspect of reflecting on you know, fascism generally, the sort of Nazi regime in particular, this idea that if you weren't a Nazi, were you still a bad person? And I think that Sally's a great example of that, because on the one hand, um, Sally's a survivor. You know, we see her as sort of this individual who's just trying to sort of scrape out a means of survival for herself. There's uh, certainly a selfish aspect to it, because obviously she wants to be a, you know, successful, creative actress but at the same time she wants luxury and you know refinement but at the same time she also just wants to get through the day and in order to do that you sort of see her becoming you know more and more willfully ignorant of the world around her to the extent that it you know it keeps her alive and it keeps her going so i think that you know to me the this one of the sort of didactic elements of the of the film is this idea that you can be an enabler of, you know, fascism, of injustice, what have you, by inaction and by, you know, acting purely out of selfish motives. And, you know, I don't think that that means that Sally is necessarily a bad person per se, but if you sort of globalize it and you think, you know, if all of this, if we create a nation of selfish people who are only acting in their own self-interest, this is what develops. Well, and what's so fascinating about that and and what makes it um, not particularly didactic to my view, um, but rather more uh, descriptive, is that it's so sympathetic in where Sally's motivations come from to the point of being very on the nose with an absentee father, right? Like it, it takes pains to make sure that you understand why Sally acts the way that she does and why, um, 
Brian acts the way that he does and why all of the actors in this movie are acting in accordance with their backgrounds uh, deterministically. Um, that sort of saves it from didacticism, if that's a word. Um, and also, I think where the arc ends up makes it more descriptive, to my view. Um, this doesn't have a Casablanca ending, right? Uh, which is funny because that's sort of a movie I kept thinking of. It's like, is this going to end with Brian and Sally uh, starting a beautiful friendship to fight the Nazis? Uh, it turns out, no, uh, pretty obviously. Um, but I would argue that that Sally's choice at the end of this movie um, to, spoilers, uh, abort the baby that she and maybe Brian, um, maybe uh, her other uh, um, Max boyfriend, Baron. Max. Yes. Um, what's that, Aaron? I was just uh, Baron Maximilian yeah. von Heun. Yeah, one of my favorite. Oh man, we can come back to that line. Uh, there's some. There's amazing uh, f- frankness in the dialogue in this movie. Uh, it's really, really sharp. But anyway, um, I think that her choice to uh, abort that baby is um, self awareness. Maybe for the first time, it's this movie is suggesting that not necessarily that you have a responsibility, or not necessarily that these people had a responsibility. Um, or whether or not they ever saw it like that. Um, but, but that there is a need to be at least aware of the implications and the consequences of the choices you're making. I think that, that Sally at the end of this movie, she makes for the first time a choice that is informed by the entirety of the political and personal realities around her. Um, I don't think that the movie is saying that's good or bad. It's just showing how that happened and how a growth toward self-actualization or maturity is about realizing that. Um, and I was very interested in that. And I, that doesn't feel didactic, right? Because it's not saying that Sally was right or wrong or that she had or didn't have a responsibility. It's sort of just saying this is how she got to political consciousness or uh, self-consciousness. Right. Uh, and wh- it sounds like, I mean, the kind of language you're using to describe what the movie does in its treatment of Sally and it, like in, in her arc as a character is kind of like that they're setting that the movie sets up a little bit of like an audience surrogate in her uh, to an extent, not necessarily again, pulling it back toward a like didactic view of the film, but, and then that gets me thinking if that, if that's true, if like the, if the movie is putting a little bit of the, uh, so to speak, the, the funhouse mirror that, like you said, back of the audience through her character, like the place of the actual audience at the cabaret as well. It's like we swap between her and Brian and the the actual cabaret audience as surrogate for the film's audience in some ways, right? Like it makes no attempt to make things seem uh, super naturalistic until um, I guess the tomorrow belongs to me scene, which we should probably talk about uh, because that is one of the few pieces that just arises from a situation. Like all the music is like we said, diegetic, but it, that's the only one, only place where, um, you know, outside of the cabaret where music starts up, uh, sung by people. Um, I guess just that that view of I, I guess there are multiple ways that you could see or, or multiple characters, so to speak, parties in this film that you could see as audience surrogate. And I I think that complicates in the way that Harry was talking about what the movie is trying to do and say about uh, political consciousness and activism. Okay, so I my hand jumped up because I wanted to talk about this scene because it's honestly one of my favorite sequences in film period because it's just it's so dense and I just love it so much. I mean, from the just the purest example of it. So I mean, just I'm gonna back up and just kind of set up the scene. So um, in this uh, in this portion of the movie, Sally and 
Brian and Max have left Berlin. They've sort of gone to his country manor and you almost get the, the sense that this is sort of an alternate future that they could have. You know, they, they sort of have this throuple scenario happening where the three of them are kind of all leaning on each other and there's this sort of sexual chemistry between all of them. And um, you sort of get the sense that this could be sort of the awakening or the acceptance of Brian, who has been sort of in denial about his sort of same sex, whatever, whether it's homosexuality, bisexuality, he seems to not, he seems to recognize that he's different, but at the same time, doesn't really want to engage with that aspect of himself. Um, which I think, you know, you can make a funny thing about him retreating to, to the, to uh, the academy because of that. But, um, he he sort of starts to open up and wake up a little bit. And then on their way back to Berlin, their, uh, their sort of escapist fantasy is interrupted a little bit because they stop at this beer garden. They're having this sort of very lovely bucolic German time. And um, all of a sudden, somebody starts singing. This young boy stands up and starts singing this, you know, Tomorrow Belongs to Me song, which has some, you know, very naturalistic and sort of, beautiful in its own way imagery but then as the camera sort of pans out you see that he's sort of this little Hitler youth child singing this song and he's you know representative of this sort of Aryan ideal he's this little blonde boy who has you know the perfect Aryan face and things like that and suddenly everyone around them starts rising and everyone is singing along except for a few people um Brian and Max being chief among them as sort of these outsiders but then there are other people, this camera centers on this old man in particular, who you never are sort of informed specifically is uh, Jewish. But I think that's sort of the impression that the audience yeah, is supposed to gather yeah. that, like, you know, you don't know the Jews around you until you sort of figure it out um, to, to sort of be crass about it. But he has this sort of very tragic look on his face as, you know, the community around him is sort of rising up and the camera does a great job of sort of turning this beautiful lyrical song into this almost war cry, the seriousness on the the people's faces as they're singing, the the sort of disgust that they're projecting in this like hyper nationalist, just, you know, it's a it's an absolutely terrifying scene, I think. And it's presented in a way that sort of is superficially non-threatening. Um but one of my favorite things about this scene as like a sort of piece of irony is this song has sort of taken on a mind of its own and has been maybe unsurprisingly co-opted by uh, sort of neo-fascist and neo-Nazi groups as sort of a rallying cry, which is ironic because it was written by two gay Jews. So that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I really well characterized and, and well described. Uh, it's a chilling sequence. Um, I was like, I was very... Uh, incensed by it right like it's it's a scary thing to see it's especially fascinating and, and um masterfully done how the definition of me changes in that sequence like all of a sudden you understand what they mean when they're singing tomorrow belongs to me and it's not that guy who's sitting uh and not singing along right uh that's it's a perfect example of the dialectic of what this um of this movie's dialectic, excuse me, about what music is and what art and entertainment is in, in the way that it it's about the movies about shifting 
that meaning even for us, Jason, to like get back to your point about how like who are we in this movie and what what is it about um, the audience surrogate that this movie is trying to communicate with us and what is what are our responsibilities? Uh, sequences like that are definitely about reframing what music is and what it does and also what it means when we listen to it. Um, I think that, that this is a movie that really wants to surprise and uh, shock you, right? Like Sh- Sally does um, with what it actually means sort of politically when you participate in watching something like this. Like when you go to a cabaret, whether that's a cabaret uh, in Germany or in a movie theater, right? Um, and I think that that is that sequence is a really powerful um sort of like restatement of or microcosmic statement of the movie's overall thesis um in a really fascinating way i was just about to use the term microcosm because it very much is i don't know how much i have to add to that statement but i left my hand up just because i wanted to sort of gush about it too like the fact that Brian and Max and like an unidentified old man in the audience are the only three who don't get up and sing, but the song does not start out as like a, a, a Reich chant, right? It's just one child starts to sing. People are sort of quizzically looking at him while he's singing. And then eventually, slowly, the whole group, aside from these three characters, uh, joins in. And, and like it is really just a tiny restatement of the whole movie's themes. Uh, Matt, your hands up. Did you have more thoughts? Yeah, I just one thing I did want to add is just this idea that the that sequence itself sort of plays with the idea that I think that there's the movie is sort of and I think I introduced this a little bit, the movie sort of presents this sort of segment as this idea that maybe you could just run away like you and your you and your crew um, can sort of escape this, you know, this political reality, this, uh, you know, horrifying world situation, everything you can run away, you can escape to the country and uh you know, everything will be fine. And it goes to show in this scene that that's impossible, that, you know, wherever you are, this is going to follow you. There's no, there's no real way to, to escape this reality. And you have to sort of look at there in the face. What a good point. Damn. Aaron, you can go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'll just say, I think it's also tying into kind of the, the stereotype of, uh, the country, the countryside is like, a. I don't know, like a, a, a simmering pot of uh, kind of resentment and a lot of the negative attitudes uh, in a country. I think you get that. I mean, you even get that today with a lot of, you know, even people who consider themselves uh, like left wing, a lot of their thoughts of uh, like rural areas. Um, I think it is playing with that. And I think that it it uh, as I was watching it, I, I love the scene, but I thought like, mm, is this movie going to do anything with that idea? I think the end of this movie, which is a reflection of the cabaret uh, fully, you know, uh, the audience is, is completely filled up with Nazis is kind of a uh, rebuttal to the, the idea that, yeah. um, you know, the, these ideas and these kind of evil thoughts only exist in the countryside, in the rural area. I mean, I think, you know, I think it's, it's not a, it's not a coincidence that they're out, you know, in the countryside when this happens, you know, that's often where a lot of, uh, people who would be impacted by the economic, problems, you know, kind of post-World War One would live uh, is opposed to the city. Um, but uh, yeah, I think this movie really pays off what's set up in the scene with the ending scene um, in a way that I, I really loved. Well, it's it's worth noting that they, they take pains to talk about how Brian's landlord is also a Nazi, right? So like they, they do go out of their way to complicate that narrative that you just described, 
Um, uh, I was going to say something else, but we're on a different topic. Uh, go ahead, um, either Jason or Aaron. I'll go. I'll go. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like that you brought up that it complicates that uh, split between like the rural, um, like r- growing resentment and nationalism trend with it, it, it like bandies that directly with, um, again, like we're assuming that the audience of the cabaret is, is, is the bourgeois, right? That they are uh, high earning, like they have leisure time like this to get out and, and enjoy like a sideshow every once in a while. But then in the character of Maximilian, it like makes that very explicit that he is very, very wealthy, that he has no obligations. And he has the, I forget exactly the wording, so I'm probably going to butcher it, but he talks about how uh, basically he, he wants to see the Nazi, he sees the Nazis as a tool to eliminate the communists who are a threat to capital and then, you know, control the Nazis which again is just a very strong like indicator of that character and a very strong implicator of that that this is less than um you know that, that this isn't a one-sided class issue right i i like that you brought it up Aaron i just want to also mention that like it gets it from both sides it it attacks both sides of that of that whole mindset right yeah it does very well i mean this is a this is a movie it's going to sound a little pretentious but this is a movie about reflections, right? Like the, the beginning of this movie is a reflection in a, you know, fun house-esque mirror. That is also the end of the film. Um, the editing is very purposefully set up to uh, compare uh, the people in the cabaret with what is going on around them. Um, it, I don't think it's a, a coincidence that the the staging of the shots out in the, the countryside during the kind of, uh, you know, celebration are very similar to a lot of the shots uh, in the cabaret, specifically uh, the sequences of uh, the mud wrestling, uh, the mud wrestling sequence. So there, there are women kind of wrestling in the mud, which is usually kind of like a sexual act, um, but it is framed as kind of this very animalistic uh, uh, sequence. You know, a lot of close-up shots of kind of mud caking people's bodies, and then it cuts immediately to the audience, and the audience is uh, kind of lapping it up. And again, you know, it is reflecting what the audience looks like with what the people on stage look like, where the audience is, you know, they're dressed up, they're buttoned up, they're professional. They are, you know, kind of the middle class, the upper class, and the people on stage are not that. Um, similarly, when you go and you watch the sequence uh, in the countryside, um, if you look at how the camera even moves, as people start standing up, the camera stays low to the ground. So suddenly they are being shot uh, from below them and they look triumphant as they continue singing this, uh, you know, kind of nationalistic song um it's it's a yeah frightening sequence oh i was just gonna say i'm glad that you aaron i'm glad that you brought up the uh camera from below because uh anyone who is at all familiar with uh nazi iconography knows that that's a classic lenny riefenstahl trick um to how hitler was filmed uh and just how in general the propaganda films were made uh shoot your subject from below because they look sort of imposing and threatening and triumphant and i think that that's a really a really good catch that you made there aaron because uh i didn't think about it until you brought it up and then as soon as you did i saw it in in my head and so yeah that's very interesting i will also say i don't maybe this is a stretch but i i tweeted out while i was watching the sequence at the very beginning of the sequence there is a shot where uh you know it's it's playing like the classic kind of german you know folk songs or whatever they're sitting down at a table enjoying a beer there's a single shot, like a close-up shot of like a bartender 
pouring a beer into like a beer stein and it is the single worst pour uh that i've ever seen in my life it is like 100 foam up to the entire top of the glass and i was just like laughing about it and i tweeted out like you know, a, a screenshot of it. And was like, Hey, this is the single worst pour I've ever seen in my entire life. And then as the scene went on, I was like, I think that's intentional. Like, I think that is kind of messaging the perversion of what is to come in the scene. And I'm just a moron and didn't pick up on kind of pretty basic filmic language. I don't know. Maybe that's like a stretch. Uh, what, what point do you think it's trying to make by showing a shitty head? I mean, it is, it is a, it is a, I want, perversion's a weird word, but it is a, a, kind of a dark twist on like the, a classic image of uh, a German, you know, kind of countryside, right? Like you get the images of all the smiling white faces, the young children singing. I think that is a an image that is often portrayed as pure and representative of Germany in the same way that, you know, like Oktoberfest and kind of the, this, you know, big tall glasses of light beer. And I think it is like this weird kind of distortion of that. Maybe that's like, I don't know why else you'd have that shot. It looks so fucking bad. It's like clearly not how you're supposed to pour beer. Um, I don't know. I just couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about that as I was watching the scene. It's about the empty promises of Nazi ideology. Sure. Yeah. You could read it. Um, I was, I was saying before when I accidentally stepped on my own mic um, about Aaron's point about reflections, I wanted to take that, uh, a, a step further and talk about how this this movie's relationship with it with its audience as we have been um Aaron you brought up or Jason maybe uh I think you brought up that uh the the people in the audience of the cabaret were meant to think that they're people like Maximilian that they're the that they're the bourgeois right and and not only um bourgeois in the in the classical sense of of capital ownership but also in the the liberal sense that these are people who are enlightened heavy scare quotes enough not to be shocked by the cabaret but instead to be entertained by it and the entertainment that they're taking away from it is itself somehow more enlightened or or um empathetic with the people in the audience when in fact obviously that is not the case and obviously this movie is making the point that that those those cabaret performances were uh for ridicules purposes not unlike like a john waters cavalcade of perversions type of situation where in fact these people were going to the cabaret to look down upon the people on the stage um, and how fucked up that is. And and this movie is really interested in that. And also in in part implicating the audience itself as in us in the notion that we might be doing similar things with our entertainment or how the fulcrum of sort of entertainment power works. This is a movie that's really obsessed with power, I think, in general uh, and in who wields it and how it alters um, motivations and even uh, desires in, in every context. Um, and so that, that was a really good point to bring up. And I think a way that, that, that this movie, um, both implicates everyone the way it always has been and squares that circle of the, the differences, quote unquote, between the rural and the, um, the elite, so to speak, um, in a really interesting way. Sure. I, it's almost like we were talking, we've been talking about how the audience is surrogate for like. I don't need to restate our our thesis there, but it's almost like the folks going to the cabaret go with the intent to laugh and escape as the opening number suggests. Uh, And then the MC being, you know, more, I guess, politically minded maybe, or as like a stand in for 
uh, the you know overarching political activity in Germany and and you know world politics at the time uh, spins it as more satire. And then, but by the end of the film, I almost got the feeling that like the audience was aware that it was political satire and it was just a place to laugh at political satire. You know, because like uh, like I said at the beginning, part part of the thing that uh, one of the things that I guess confused and surprised me was that. Uh, contemporary audiences didn't quite see all of those numbers, or at least the most obvious of them, as satire. And maybe that's kind of you know a little bit the point. But uh, the it seemed like the audience in the movie probably could, but directly ignored those the the responsibility and like the um, the I guess what the numbers what what those pieces are trying to say in favor of again just having a good time and laughing. I don't know if we're getting too far off point for where Matt wanted to take us here, but I'm going to let him take the mic. I mean, I think, I mean, I can kind of tie those two things together. On the one hand, I think that, you know, what you're saying about this, this uh, sort of contrast between what the audience thinks it is and what the audience actually is, is really interesting. And I, I mean, I'm reminded of this idea that like, you know, the, this urban audience thinks of themselves as sort of temporarily displaced millionaires. Whereas, you know, obviously the interest of Max in the sort of political and economic resolution of how he sees the country's problems versus the sort of interest of everyday, you know, city dwelling bourgeoisie even. Um, but, you know, these sort of more working class type folks, their interests are not the same. And as much as these sort of working class people want to think that they're the same, they're, they're clearly not. And that's, uh, I think that's something that that tension is something that's displayed pretty well. But also, I mean, Jason, to your point of, you know, how that relates to satire and this question of whether or not, you know, is it, is the satire too good when the audience can't tell it's satire anymore? Um, I think that, I mean, I feel like we should talk about, uh, if you could see her like I do, um, as a sort of scene, as a song, as, I mean, everything about it is interesting, especially because um, it was, uh, I think, toned down a bit in the musical versus in the show. Um, I know that in the in the show, he doesn't actually say Jewish. Uh, like he, he, she wouldn't look Jewish at all. He says something else. I can't remember what it is. Um, but the the original lyrics is written were Jewish, and he wanted to make it more explicit like that. Um, and so I think that that's interesting in terms of how that plays in the scene, but also just this idea that I think it's it's reasonable to question sort of the intent behind the scene, because on the one hand, you're sort of seeing this as sort of this sympathetic and beautiful and sad portrayal. But at the same time, your standard for Judaism is someone in a gorilla suit. And is that supposed to be sad? Is that supposed to be pathetic? Is that supposed to be funny? Or is it supposed to be all of those things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it the song kind of does what some of the the what we talked about the editing doing throughout the film does which is that i i think you know if you're just watching this film you know i had i kind of knew what the song was about beforehand and i think you can you can really pick it up just given the um kind of subplot that's going on in the background with uh is it fritz wendell is the character who's secretly jewish uh and is trying right. to get married but yeah so i think you can kind of figure it out but the 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 song the lyrics do not actually signify that this person is Jewish until the very last line. So I think you're 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 meant to kind of take this as this general song about love and acceptance and seeing someone for who they are. And in the last line, it, it does kind of the same thing where 
this interiority, this this emotional expression of love is instantly recontextualized uh, yep. into the world around them. And the, the yeah, the last line about uh, uh, you know if you could see her, you wouldn't. She wouldn't look Jewish at all. Um, I think that's it's supposed to be like kind of a gut punch. Uh, and the the original lyric was uh, I believe mesquite, which is like a, a Yiddish word for ugly. Um, so kind of signifying some of the same thing, but yes, also maybe toned down a little bit, uh, for the theatrical version. Uh, we keep using the word microcosm, um, which I I think in, in a musical sense is sort of, uh, um, makes sense, right? Because musicals are all about having reprises that literally restate the themes of the, um, of the story being told musically over and over again. Um, I thought that, that particularly that gut punch, uh, is a reflection of the larger gut punch of this movie where like by the end of this movie, we're supposed to have a radical recontextualized view of what we've been watching and what it means to have this story be told and what a cabaret is and what um, artistic uh, filmic escapism is and how it, how it operates to um, uphold power structures or um uh, lead to the the rise of fascism or or what have you. Um, that really struck me as that feeling that it evoked, where it was like, oh, that's what this was about all along. Like it wasn't uh, a general statement about love and acceptance. It wasn't just a sort of cute art cabaret um, diversion. It was a pointed political message. Uh, just like this movie is itself not a diversion, not a musical, but in fact a pointed uh, political statement, right? Um, so, so that was interesting to me. Um, that being said, Matt, I, I, I take your point about, or I, I guess I'm sympathetic to the idea of, of why it was received the way it was. It is a really interesting movie to think about afterward, even more than it is to watch in the moment. Or for me, like I had a very different opinion of it while watching it than I did after getting out of it and doing a little bit of reading and seeing what my friends thought about it. Uh, Matt, your review helped uh, solidify and crystallize some of my thoughts quite a bit, I think. Um, and knowing that you were, that you're so like heavily interested in the movie and you're like, you have you're you're the subject matter expert here, so to speak. Uh, I, I would highly recommend, uh, and I can send, I guess I can link in the show notes, this, this piece again, it's, it's pretty basic level, but it's a, it's an academic paper by Stephen Belletto called Cabaret and Anti-Fascist Aesthetics. It touches on a lot of what we've already talked about. And frankly, some of my talking points were at least inspired, if not directly taken from this paper. Um, I guess, I guess now is when I would open the door. Uh, we're at just over an hour to anybody's like closing thoughts or anything we didn't get around to that, uh, that anybody's notes caught for before we, before we head into that segment that everybody loves and knows. Um, just one more thing. I don't know that we need to dwell on it too much because I think that, that Maximilian himself is a big stand in for a lot of the themes we talked about being the sort of bougie guy who, um, he, he purports to be a patron of the arts, but really he's a user and abuser, right. Um, of both Brian and Sally, uh, this movie has a somewhat troubled, troubling dialectic on um, sexuality as sexuality is desire for a version of yourself that you want or a version of things that you want um, above and beyond any other sort of like um, needs. Uh, it's it's a it's a version of a vision of sexuality that makes sense, uh, particularly from Marxist views um, or Marxist lenses vis a vis like power being the, the primary motivation of so many things. Um, it, it could be kind of weird uh, in contemporary um, 
takeaways, but it didn't bother me necessarily. But uh, again, I'm not the prime person to be bothered by something like that. Um, uh, go ahead, Matt. Um, sort of connecting to that, but also sort of uh, veering a little bit away from that. <laughs> okay. I think that one of the one of the things that I that I love about this movie and is the uh, I mean, I love all the songs and I could go into length about all of them, but I think that sort of connecting to what you're talking about this about this relationship with sexuality and this sort of engagement, but also disengagement with it is the song maybe this time that Sally sings. So uh, I mean, sort of contextualize it in the the way that it's presented in the movie. So Sally immediately wants to seduce Brian. Um, he tells her pretty much in not so many words that he's not swinging that way. Um, and she's, you know, chagrined a little bit, but at the same time, it's sort of like, you get the impression that she sort of sees it as a bit of a challenge too. Um, and eventually they, uh, actually do sort of consummate this, uh, this connection that the two of them have and they, there, there's a sexual component that's added to it. And it's interesting to me because I think that this song is sort of this perfect tragic depiction, um, in a very basic way <laughs> of, you know, the straight girl who falls in love with a gay man. And I think that, you know, uh, anyone who has uh, straight women friends can probably relate to this uh, from from their perspective uh, on just a very sort of comedic level. But at the same time, it tells you so much about Sally as a character and sort of the the broader themes of her life and what she sort of sees and needs and and desires. Um, I think that uh, whether it was if it was Jason or Aaron who made the point about uh, sort of hitting on the nose a little bit, Sally's sort of Freudian excuse for who she is and that she has her absentee father that, you know, all she's looking for is just to be taken care of. But I mean, if that is presented a little bit, uh, you know, heavily, it's still you can see the motivation of it in this song a little bit. And you can see that, you know, what she's looking for desperately, even, you know, ignorantly is someone to be taking or someone to take care of her, even if it's going to be a man who she fundamentally does not have anything in common with. Right. It's funny. It's, it's like, this is a, it's a movie that's so interested in the actual complications of real uh, humans. Um, but at, at the end of the day, these are still fictional characters, which means that their sexualities need to serve plot purposes. <laughs> which is obviously not the way that life really always works. So it's like one sort of weakness of, of the movie's rhetoric, but it's, it's one that's excusable because it's just a weakness of the rhetoric of plot making. <laughs> um, sorry to interrupt you, Aaron, go ahead. Uh, I, I, I think my general point was kind of summed up. I think I'm good. I don't, I don't have any, I think we covered, it's weird. Cause I wrote like a, a large amount of notes for this film. And I think we, kind of ping-ponging around, touched on all of them, which is usually not what happens. I usually have two or three spare things, but I, I think we covered my main takes on this film. Excellent. Uh, I think, Damn, I, I wish think, I had notes like that. I think same for me. I didn't uh, I didn't have like extensive, expansive notes, but I had a lot of thoughts, and I think we covered most of them. Um, I think it might be time then for uh, the segment we like to call Cody's Is Noties. Is it time? Cody's yeah. Noties? Yeah. Hey, uh, I'm Cody. Uh, I've got a couple of, uh, of noties today. The first one is, is really, really quick, uh, in comparison. Shout out, uh, to Marissa Berenson, who portrayed Natalia Landauer in, uh, in this movie that we've been talking about, Cabaret. 
Um, she also stars in Barry Lyndon, which is maybe Kubrick's best film. Um, and one I've been meaning Yo, to revisit. Speak the truth. Uh, if you've not seen Barry Lyndon. That's actually, that's actually a take among, I think people who really know Kubrick's movies, actually, I think. You might I actually love Barry Lyndon. Like yeah. Yeah. It rules and she rules. Um, and the second point, uh, we talked about the Academy Awards very briefly. Um, quick, uh, disclaimer for this, uh, the Oscars, um, awards and award shows, in general, but also the Academy um, specifically, uh, they're kind of horseshit. But from a study of numbers uh, perspective and the politics that go into awarding people and and works of art, uh, you know, certain um, decorations, that's something that I really engage with. Uh, So I I wanted to do some some digging in this. This film was pretty rich from that uh, point of view. Um, This movie did win eight Oscars, which is the most Oscar wins without also including the Academy Award for Best Picture. And of the eight that Cabaret won, uh, it did, uh, it, it was mentioned, uh, Liza Minnelli did win for Best Actress, uh, which was pretty well deserved. Um, Fosse also won for uh, Director, um, for Directing, and David Bretherton won for Best Film Editing. And um, Director and Editing historically have a pretty they strongly correlate with the best picture category um there's just more than other uh more than other of the categories uh, a win in, in either of those usually means uh you know a, a strong chance or even a success at, at winning best picture too so i thought it was really strange that uh this film succeeded in in winning both of those categories without also winning best picture and to provide a little bit of context editing became an award uh, at the Oscars in 1934, and only 10 films have won Best Picture without at least a nomination for editing. Most recently uh, was Birdman, and before that, uh, a film that Matt and I love, uh, Ordinary People, in 1980. That was the one prior to to Birdman. Um, so you can kind of get an idea, of, uh, you know, of how infrequent that is. And if my math is correct, of the 68 films that have won Best Picture since 1952. Um, I believe it was 33 have won for editing as well, which um, maybe would sound more impressive if not for the recent cold streak. The most recent pairing of those two awards came at the 2013 awards with Argo. Um, so a bit of a dry <laughs> spell there uh, with those awards. Um, and then, uh, but I, I guess to counter that for 33 consecutive years, uh, 1981 to 2013, every best picture winner had also been nominated for best editing and about two thirds of those best picture winners also won for editing. Um, so uh, again, a lot of rich history there. Best director, uh, shares a more closer link with, with best picture 66 of the 92 best picture winners also won for best director. Uh, most recently, uh, uncle bong for parasite, um, you know, obvious and very recent, uh, and also very well deserved. So, and I didn't have, um, a great way or, uh, you know, I kind of set myself up for failure. I also watched, uh, cabaret very shortly before we started recording. So I could have dug into this a little bit, but there's also not a great way to sort, uh, Academy award data for those specific permutations of winning, you know, director and editing, but not picture. Um, so it's, it's, but I think we can, uh, pretty well conclude that it's not necessarily unbelievable that cabaret didn't win best picture, but since it did have editing and director wrapped up, it's at the very least quite extremely unusual that best picture was not 
you know, that it did not earn that award as well. Cody, do you know what did? What won Best Picture that year? Um, I can look it up right now. <laughs> it's not winning. The oh, Godfather. was it The Godfather? Yeah. Ah, oh, shit. Okay. Well, Fair play. Explains it. I guess that makes sense. But yeah, you hate to see it regardless. You love to see The Godfather. Oh. It's a very good movie, but you know. Cody, I don't want to jump in on your noties, but I do just want to give one also shout out to Bob Fosse because the year that he won Best Director was he made a, he also uh, set a record because it was a year in which he won. Uh, he's the only person in history to win an Oscar, Emmy, and Tony in the same year. Um, so he, in addition to winning the Oscar Holy for shit. Best Director, he won um, eight Tonys uh, for the musical Pippin, and oh, fuck. Uh, he, and and he also won uh, an Emmy for producing Liza with a Z, which was Liza Minnelli's like one woman show. And he won all of those awards in 1973. So it was a very, very big, very cool year for Bob Fosse. That's insane. That Fosse rules. sweeps week. Man, I didn't know Pippin was so close to this. Because Jesus, Pip, that's, that's, goddamn. Is there a more accomplished, like, that's the only, is that the only, you said, you said person who's done that? Yeah, he was the first and only person in history to ever win those three awards in the same year. I, I think he's kind of underrated as a film director. I mean, he also did All That Jazz. You know, I think this and All That yeah. Jazz are generally considered his best films, but all of his other films are, are considered very good as well. Uh, this movie is uh, extremely well directed, like very, very well directed. Yeah, so, yeah I clearly, would definitely agree with that. Very clearly somebody who had intimate knowledge of how to adapt what was going on on the stage to the screen, right? Because you said, there, like Harry said, there are things that could not be done on a stage that were invented for the filmic presentation of this movie. Very, very, like, very wise to it's have him be stuff, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. He also was uh, uncredited as the uh, choreographer for uh, the dance sequences in White Christmas. Uh, I like White Christmas a lot. And uh, so shout out to Bob Fosse for that one. Do you like White Christmas or do you just watch White Christmas? Uh, I am forced to at gunpoint by my fiance's fiance's family, but also I like that movie a lot. Yeah, of course you do. Uh, Cody, was that the end of your noties? Yeah. Yep. Those are those are my noties. Mathematics. That was statistical noties. Yeah. Yeah. Statistically significant noties. Statistically significant noties. Cody's noties are always statistically significant uh, in my heart. Aww. Uh, All right. Well, oh boy. as long as as long as that's the end, um, I think I'm going to give us the outro. Everybody cool with that? Yeah, I I suppose. Uh, thanks you so much definitely. for coming on, Matt. Thank you all for having me. And uh, I will just close with one thing, which is if you're interested in the subject matter of this at all, um, I would encourage you to watch uh, Fosse Verdon, the miniseries. It's on Hulu. It's excellent. Um, it's got some pretty standout performances in it and you really do get a good sense of who he is as a person and sort of the complicated relationship with sort of creation and stardom and all of that stuff and it really gets into pretty much everything here and done in a very exciting and interesting way man i've been meaning to watch that that's such a perfect recommendation uh for like right now because like right now i'm primed for it fuck yeah all right watch frosty verdon uh in the meantime uh, my name is Jason. Uh, you've been listening to Try Love, podcast about movies at the Trilon Cinema. You can find us at Try Love's 
God. Trilove Podcast on Twitter. Find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema. Support them by buying merch and tickets and stuff during uh, the COVID-19 quarantine. Um, they are not open for business until later this fall, but you can uh, prep some tickets and, and merch for when they reopen. Uh, again, I'm Jason. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. If you need to go outside, please wear a mask. Uh, I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. I'm Harry. You can find me at Shitaki Harry. And one last And I'm Matt. You. you can find me at Matt Yost underscore. Oh, shoot. Sorry, no, Nathan. I, I was just going to give you the give you the intro outro, uh, but you, you can, you can care us. You can carry us out, Matt. Matt's please. such a pro. He doesn't even need it. I'm Matt. You can find me at Matt Yost, Y-O-S-T underscore. Divine Decadence, darling. Divine Decadence, darling.